0: A better way to do this let me show you a better way
1: hi folks. this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the survival podcast as always one man 's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't today is June the eighth two thousand and eighteen this is episode twenty two thirty four of the survival podcast. It is a Friday. And that means it is time for an expert counsel Q&A show. We've got a bunch of good stuff on the doc for you today. Uh, starting out, i got a question for Doc Bones. What is hyperemesis and what can you do about it? It has to do with something that happens to some women during pregnancy, and he's got some good advice on that. Got some follow-up on the thoughts of conversion of a 4x4 vehicle into basically a side-by-side UTV type thing or replacement for like a, a mule or something like that from Charles Sandville. I have all about tap roots and root cuttings and propagation from cuttings with Nick Ferguson. Thoughts on relocation to another state for your retirement with John Pugliano. Special blood clotting products uh, for those on blood thinners from Doc Bones. Doc's has a, a big backlog, so I'm kind of giving him two today. SEO basics and coffee is medicine from Nicole Sauce. And then for my anchor segment today, I'm going to do some follow-up on website SEO and website marketing, uh, teeing off of what Nicole has to say. So we'll get to all of that in just a bit. Before we do, let's take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 138, and we're sticking with Rome, as we have been through this part of history, because that's where most of the stuff is going on that we know about anyway, uh, with records that are uh, somewhat accurate. Year 138 AD, the longing for death and unable to die. Uh, In January this year, Hadrian's heir, Lucius Elysius, dies from his poor health, forcing Hadrian to look for a new heir. The Senate was hoping Hadrian would finally pick a capable and popular man, but Hadrian offered to adopt Titus Antonius, a senator of above-average capability who had been a member of Hadrian's court but had no ambition to become emperor. The only condition to the deal was that Antonius had to adopt Lucius Verus, the son of Lucius Aurelius and Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Antonius decided to accept and adopted the two boys as his heirs. Uh, this was none too soon as Hadron became bedridden with what is suspected to have been congestive heart failure. He was in great pain and tried to smuggle poison and daggers into his room, but was thwarted every time. It seems Servius' curse that Hadron, quote, longed for death and be unable to die, and quote, was in full force. Eventually, Hadron gave up on his suicide attempts, and on July 10th, he finally died after ruling the Empire for 21 years. My take by David Verne. Since Antonius was in his 50s, Hadrian probably was expecting him to die in a decade or so, leaving Marcus and Lucius, uh, Antonius, uh, uh, Marcus and leaving the throne to Marcus and Lucius. Uh, Antonius would surprise everyone and rule for 23 years that saw no military campaigns or major disasters. It would be the golden age of the Roman Empire. So ends the year 138. So, Here's my quick little thought on this one. You know, Servius, you know, places this curse on uh, on Hadrian, and then it comes to be. Well, obviously, if anything, it's coincidence. But it also makes me wonder: like, did it even really happen that way? Historians sometimes have a tendency to write things the way they wish they were to be, rather than the way that they are. It's called revisionist history. It's nothing new, and uh, it's still with us today. Anybody who is actually a serious student of history has learned that many of the things that you're taught uh, to be absolutely factual in school, take tests on, pass, get A's for giving that answer, you go check it out, and it's 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 not really the way it happened at all now, is it? Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show. Let's talk... Uh, uh, first about, and I'm probably saying this wrong, hyperemesis, hyperemesis uh, with, uh, with Doc Bones. He said it, I listened to it, but that was uh, about an hour ago and I'm sure I got it wrong. But basically it's having problems with uh, nausea, vomiting, dehydration during pregnancy far more so than is typical uh, with typical simple morning sickness.
0: Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The survival medicine handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from John from Missouri, who asks, what are ways of dealing with severe pregnancy nausea above and beyond doctor's meds? Wife and I are currently expecting 16 weeks along, and she's been dealing with constant and severe nausea. She's on three different anti-nausea medicines and still throwing up once a day or more. As the pregnancy has progressed, it's gotten worse. She has asthma. I'm truly worried that between the two might cause major complications. We've had one miscarriage already. I fear for her life and the life of our child. Two trips to the emergency room and two extra appointments with her lady doc. We're using ginger in an adjustable base bed, but is there anything more we can do? Seeking your wise counsel, John from Missouri. John, nausea and vomiting during pregnancy are common symptoms, but a small percentage of women have a severe version known as hyperemesis, Gravidarum. No one's sure what causes hyperemesis in 3% of human pregnancies, but it's been in the medical literature for centuries. The good news for your wife is that the majority of women with this problem will be better by, say, maybe 20 weeks or so, although a small percentage continue to have some nausea and vomiting throughout the pregnancy. The main thing That's important for you to monitor is her weight gain and her hydration status. If she's just vomiting once a day on the current medications, hopefully that means that she's not terribly dehydrated, not losing a lot of weight. The worst cases of hyperemesis may vomit a dozen times a day or more and show significant weight loss. You didn't mention what medicines that the obstetrician has your wife on, but there are a number that are known to decrease the severity and frequency of vomiting. I can't say much, however, about what I would add without knowing this information. I do think it's important to consult with your asthma doctor and the obstetrician to make sure that the interaction of asthma and vomiting meds are safe. Now, from an alternative standpoint, I can tell you that pressure points on the inside of the wrist actually have some scientific data that say they may make a difference in women's vomiting during pregnancy. Some women report improvement also with methods like acupuncture and hypnosis, although the hard data is sort of difficult to find. In the worst cases, outpatient or home intravenous hydration should be offered to you as an option. This is a type of therapy that can be done at home in many cases and will assure adequate fluid intake. If weight loss is an issue, IV feeding can also be given for a period of time until your wife improves. Now, dietary modification in patients with nausea and vomiting may also make a difference. Eat frequent small meals when hungry, regardless of whether it's normal mealtime or not. Avoid fatty or spicy foods that have strong aromas. Increase intake of bland or dry foods like plain toast, crackers in the morning may be helpful, maybe jello, maybe chicken broth. Increase the intake of carbonated beverages like ginger ale. And some people note improvement of nausea and vomiting just by decreasing activity, increase the amount of rest. Sometimes being outside where kitchen or pet odors may be less strong might help. Herbal treatment includes things like ginger, peppermint, lemon, grapefruit, avocado, bland carbohydrates like rice. And from a vitamin standpoint, food containing B6 is thought to be a natural way to treat nausea. John, it's important to relay your concerns in no uncertain terms. To the doctor, ask specifically what methods haven't been tried yet that might help. With any luck, your wife will be through this phase of her pregnancy soon, and you'll have a healthy mother and baby at the end. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides subscribing to doomandbloom.net's newsletter and getting a copy of our survival medicine handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything at our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again.
1: All right, next up, we had a question that I, I took a, a bit of a stab at with some thoughts. I sent it off to Tim Glantz and Charles Sandville. Charles has gotten back with us on it. Tim has yet to do so. But basically, the guy wanted to know about taking like an old 4x4 vehicle and maybe taking a cutting torch to it. Uh, and leaning it out and using it as a replacement to something like a UTV, a side-by-side UTV on his property. Charles, take it away, man. What's up, everybody? It's Charles from humblemechanic.com taking your car-related
2: questions. This one says it's for me, Tim Glance, or Jack. I went back through and saw Jack answered this question. I did not listen to his answer, I didn't want that to taint what my thoughts are, and I'm actually curious as what Tim would think too. The price for a side-by-side seems ridiculous for what you get, at least for my needs. I'm wondering about stripping down an old truck to serve the same function. I have a 10-acre homestead and a 94 F-150 4x4 that the cabin bed are about to fall off due to rust. I've thought about stripping off as much as possible and rebuilding it into something that would fill a need for hauling stuff around my property. Keeping it street-legal would be a plus. I've also heard of people doing similar things with a Geo Tracker, A small Jeep would also work, but they're not as easy to find compared to a pickup. Yeah, and from my experience with Jeeps, they're usually more expensive, too. So for those of you wondering what the heck a side-by-side is, picture a big old jacked-up golf cart, and uh, you kind of get an idea there. These things are actually really cool, but... They are not cheap. Some of the least expensive legit brand ones I'm finding start new at like nine grand and you can probably get them as decked out as you wanted to and spend what you'd spend on a good quality car. So I get why you wouldn't want to just buy one of those. Before we decide what the best course of action is on what to do with this vehicle, do we keep our 94 truck and make it into a farm truck? Do we buy that really expensive side by side or do we look for something else? Is what are we going to be doing with it? What do we need this side-by-side for that, say, maybe an ATV, like a four-wheeler that just one person rides on, can't do? Because you can get those pretty well-equipped. They can tow little trailers just like that side-by-side would, and you can get them on Craigslist for a couple grand in really good condition in one that you know probably sat in a dude's garage and got ridden three or four times over the course of a handful of years. So it may need some maintenance brought up to speed, but it's a really good deal. Or are we gonna be doing things like filling the entire bed with dirt and moving it around the property? Before I went the side-by-side route, I'd go the ATV route just because they're so much cheaper and they're still pretty darn capable. Even new, if you decided to go that route, you'd save a couple grand, but with this kind of stuff, guys, buying used is usually the best way to go. Even if you have to run it up to the local power sports shop and have what basically is like a used car check done on it, well worth it, you're gonna save a bunch of money or buy a used one from that same thing, because people do trade these out a lot. I don't think people trade out of ATVs as much as they do street motorcycles, but it still does happen quite a bit. This then preserves your 94 F-150 from having it stripped all the way down. Depending on where you live, you might only be able to strip so much off this truck before it's not street legal anymore. What I might look to do, depending on how bad it is, is sell that F-150 to buy the four-wheeler, one of the bad things about an F-150 is it's big. And and if your homestead is wooded, you know, that side-by-side or that four-wheeler is going to fit in places that the truck won't. It's not going to tear the land up like the truck will. So I think those things are going to make the side-by-side or the four-wheeler or the geotracker, which I do think is a great option, going to be a lot more capable in more scenarios than the F-150. Now, if you straight up just need to tow stuff around your property, well, the F-150 is going to be able to do more for that. Although, if the body's as rusted out as it sounds like, I'd be really cautious with how much weight I put in the vehicle. You'd hate to be cruising through your property with a bed full of dirt and the bed break, or even worse, the frame break. I don't know how big of an issue that was on F-150s back then, but a lot of other trucks have had that issue. And now you have two big messes that you have to clean up. We could also look at selling the F-150 and buying something smaller that's four-wheel drive, a small pickup. That might do it, too. There's, I think, way more options than just these two or three different options. But I don't like the idea of modifying the F-150 for the sole purpose of a homestead truck. If this were a farm where we were like more big ag kind of stuff... That might be a little different where you had pathways to drive it on, and that, but I'm guessing with your 10 acres, maybe you don't. So I'd look at a four wheeler. I like the Geo Tracker. The only concern I'd have with the tracker is availability and availability of parts. You know, who knows what that availability really is? There's probably options for parts, I just don't know how available they would be. And I always think that used Jeeps are overpriced, even though I think they're really awesome and always have a place in my heart because that was my first car. I hope that doesn't give you even more to consider than you had already considered, but I do really think a lot of times that we look at things that we want to buy because we want them and they're cool, which I think those side-by-sides are cool. Then we try and figure out how do we justify owning this, and we make purchasing decisions on what we want versus what we need, which is fine as long as you got the money to pay the bill. It doesn't really matter to me. Buy whatever you want. But uh, I wouldn't tear up that F-150. In fact, I might look to maybe get a new bed for it or a new cab and bed for it. And you could probably sell it and get enough to buy that SUV and have some money in your pocket. So a lot of options here that don't require you cutting a 10, dollars 15, dollars dollars $18,000 check for really nice new side-by-side. So like I said, I hope that helps, guys. Be sure to keep the car questions coming if you want to check out more of my stuff. Head over to humblemechanic.com or swing on over to the YouTube page. All right, Jack, TSP, have an awesome weekend and I will talk to you guys again next time.
1: You know, um, the, the concept of using a simple, uh, four wheeler with a trailer is actually a really great idea. Um, about the only reason you, you would really benefit by having a side by side over that for the type of reasons that this was asked about in the original question. Would be if you have a second person, uh, not having to kind of double up on a four wheeler or what have or what have you. Um, if, it, if you're going to be mostly using it alone, I mean, trailer has a lot of advantages because it's there when you need it and it's not there when you don't need it. That's that's a really interesting thought. Uh, the other thing I would say is um, a while ago Tim had Tim Glantz from Old Grout's Military Surplus had some uh, utility racks for various tools. Uh, that were, uh, for, uh, the, the old cut V's. Uh, and, um, I bought two of them. And they hold, you know, the, the Matic and the shovel and what have you. And, uh, one of those just, uh, attached to the front of a, of a, a, a four wheeler is a really great idea. And the way Tim, when he put those out, said that was done, they, they were, people did it with just ratchet straps. They just pulled them through and used ratchet straps to hold them on and they worked just fine. That give you a pretty effective vehicle with a lot of utility, and I'm not surprised it's called a utility vehicle. Uh, but that's that's a good idea too. Another vehicle that I I was just looking on Craigslist while I was listening to Charles answer that uh, for you know what's available in four wheel drive that's relatively short wheel based uh, that's out there and available and, and available under four grand um, if you were going to do one of these conversions. And I I personally having owned one of these vehicles and really loved it would have a hard time taking a torch to one. But the older cheap Cherokees, uh, they had a lot of horsepower in those straight sixes. It was something like uh, 220 horsepower. They were actually I had a uh, one a 90 something. I think it was like a a 96 or something like that with the straight six sport motor, and it was kind of terrifying (laughs) when you really jumped on it because of the way that the vehicle's not designed to go fast, but yet it did go fast. Uh, They have a lot of horsepower. They have towing capabilities. They have four wheel drive capabilities. And I found a couple of them out there for under $4,000 without really looking very hard that seemed to be in, you know, relatively okay shape from a mechanical standpoint. So uh, I wouldn't cut one up, but it would be another vehicle that might be worth looking at. The one that I've seen done the most for things like this, again, and and they used to be really prevalent and around all over, and people were just dumping them to get rid of them, and that's why they were used, and they're really not that easy to find anymore. The Ford Bronco II that I mentioned in my original response, that was kind of the perfect vehicle to do this with. Uh, Next up, I have a question for uh, Nick Ferguson on propagating plants through cuttings and uh, how that affects tap root development and things like that. Nick, take it away.
3: Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer Jared's question. And I'm just going to read his email real quick. Is there any downside to plants propagated by root cuttings? Uh, details, I have several cuttings I took in the fall that I'd like to grow into mature trees and shrubs. I've heard growing from cuttings does not produce a tap root. I wonder if I should grow these cuttings just as a stock plant to take scion wood from and graft to rootstock. Some of my cuttings leafed out this spring but actually have no root so far on the Gumi and Pawpaw. I had them in the fridge all winter. I wonder if there was just enough energy in the cutting that they leafed out but won't actually grow I appreciate your thoughts, Jared. Great question. Yes, there are downsides. The real question should be, do the downsides to planting rooted cuttings make it an unworthy pursuit? The answer would be no. Planting rooted cuttings is a great method and one I highly endorse as long as you're going to take care of the plants. Don't root those things and use the stun method. Stun still works on them, but you're going to have a massive amount of die off with, uh, uh, rooted cuttings like that because they're just they, you're putting them in a plant ICU and when they come out of it they still need to be taken care of just like a person would. So this is kind of a topic that lots of people have gotten some misinformation on or just don't have the full picture and then they fill in the gaps with what they think it might be. So one of the other questions you asked was about the cuttings leafing out with no roots. I'll address that real quick because I don't want to Forget about it. Uh, yes, cuttings will leaf out using energy stored in the wood of the cutting. I see people all the time making this mistake. They they see them leaf out. Oh, it's great! It's rooted. Nope, it's not yet. Don't ever pull them out to see how they're doing. There's lit. I cannot think of one single good reason to do that ever, ever, ever. All you can accomplish is to destroy delicate new roots. You'll break them. I promise you, you'll break them. Don't bother pulling them out. It's not going to help you any. It's not going to help them any. You're not going to know if they're rooted until the plant shows like four to six inches of active growth. Until you you see that, pulling it out isn't going to help the plant. So you can't de- you can't transplant it until after that happens. So. Don't worry about it. You know it's rooted at that point that is putting on some good, strong, active growth. And then you can transplant it later. I suggest letting it grow for a little while. You shouldn't ever transplant a newly ra- rooted plant until it's growing well, leafed out. And mean, Just because it's leafed out only means it's still alive. Growing means it has roots. That's the difference. So you kind of have several questions all tied up in one. Um, I'll do my best. Most of the time, rootstock is grown from cuttings. So if you're buying rootstock, then it's not likely to have a taproot anyways. If you're growing rootstock from seed in the ground, which is a great idea, where it's going to live forever, you know, the spot where it's always going to stay, you're not going to dig it up and transplant it. Then depending on the species, it could have a taproot or it could start out with some kind of a taproot. But regardless of whether it does or not, it will normally have a much better root system because it will grow in the same spot from a seed for the rest of its life. So uh, the little side question here is, what's better, cuttings for rootstock or seedlings? Well, that depends on the genetics, but that's kind of a rabbit hole we don't have time to run down. Um, most of the time, people use specific root stocks for genetic resistance to diseases or size limitation. Uh, that's kind of the short of that. So I'll try to not nerd out too much on this. Uh, so I'll be using a lot of generalizations, and hopefully I'll be able to paint a picture that'll help you guys with the idea surrounding tap roots, and maybe that will answer the question for you. So I think definitions are really important. And in the years that I've been doing what I do, I found that most people have the idea um, that a tree looks the same below ground as it does above ground, almost like it's a mirror image. And that there's this massive root, like a trunk, going straight down that's pretty much as big as the trunk, with all the other roots extending out to the sides, just like the tree looks above ground. Like if you were to chop it off and flip it upside down and stick the cut part level with the stump that that's what it looks like underground that is not at all what it looks like while there are a few species of trees that i know of that have a large single root going down deep those are the exception not the rule if that's the definition you have for a taproot in your mind throw it out because that's an imaginary thing almost all trees and shrubs i know will keep the majority of the roots in the top couple inches of soil with almost all of the root mass being in the top two feet of soil. If you just did a cross section and you dug up all of the root mass and you you marked it out according to by inch, almost everything that makes up the root mass of a even a massive tree it's gonna be in the top two feet of soil. So the reality is that most plants will develop a tap root that is similar to what I just described, but the similarity diminishes as the plant grows. So as a seedling, it might have more root and a larger root, larger diameter and bigger and longer than its stem and leaves. It'll often develop this long and proportionately large central root that goes straight down into the soil to reach an area that is normally constantly moist to give the young plant the best chance at maintaining hydration so remember we're talking about proportions here a seedling tree that's four and a half inches tall that has a nine inch deep taproot. the roots are twice as deep as the tree is tall at this point and that is very very common even with uh, non-herbaceous uh, annuals um, especially so with trees and herbaceous uh, uh, Um, woody perennials and those proportions will flip dramatically as it grows larger and it stabilizes itself in the soil later in life it may only have a root that's five feet deep while the top is 50 foot tall and lateral roots that go out 150 feet wide they can have three times the reach with their roots that they do with their branches That's pretty wild. Check it out. In nature, it's not unusual for the top several inches of soil to dry out. So most of those seedling plants will generate that large taproot comparable to or larger than the size of the stem or stalk. Once that taproot reaches a depth sufficient to reach reliably moist soil, it'll slow down and it'll continue growing down to be an anchoring root that enables the plant to grow higher. And this growth enables a plant like a sapling tree to grow tall and narrow to reach as high into the canopy as possible to compete for light. Now, here's the important thing to realize. As soon as that tree is large enough to spread out enough lateral stabilizing roots, the taproot stops growing or is shed completely. That means it's gone. And why would it shed the taproot? Because it's not needed anymore. So if you're quick to pick up on the reasons that the plant would actually need to have a taproot, you're going to realize that if a human is caring for the plant and husbanding it along, the tree doesn't really need to have a taproot. The taproot is for fighting other plants for light and water. So if you're watering the tree or you've provided passive irrigation, like with a swale or something like that, and you're cutting down the competition and making it into mulch, well, then the tree has very little need for a taproot, really. So that's my answer. I hope I stayed accessible and didn't get too nerdy or complicated. I hope that helped, man. Thanks for the great question. I'm Nick Ferguson with HomeRunLiberty.com. Do good things.
1: Great stuff, as always, from Nick Ferguson. Next up, I have a question for John Pugliano. On uh, a relocation during your retirement years for just better living due to giving less of your money over to... uh, a state government. John, take it away.
4: Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question is about places to relocate in retirement. And specifically, we have a listener that's located in Texas, and she is asking about where might be the best place to relocate in terms of having her retirement income, you know, go farther. Now, her and her husband are getting ready to retire in maybe the next five years or so. They've done really well for themselves. They're going to be able to retire at a young age with a really good income stream. They're not tied to any particular one region of the country or one location. And so they're looking for a place where they can stretch their dollars the farthest. And so what that really comes down to is real estate costs and taxes. Because really, those are the two main things, the big factors that affect your overall cost of living. Let's start off with real estate. And I guess I should say here, too, in the beginning that it sounds really easy to pick a place to live. I mean, you're always seeing articles that say, you know, the top 10 best cities to retire in or the 15 best small towns to live in, that kind of stuff. I really think those things are clickbait because relocating is never an easy decision. And there are so many variables to play into it and we're not even talking about things like where your family is or what type of um, community you may fit into best from a from a social standpoint but just you know geography there are so many factors that play into this that are individual that it's really not even worth your time i don't think to read those articles about you know the best places to live So let me just give you some general ideas and some websites to go to. Now, as far as real estate, by far, I think the best website out there is Zillow.com. You can really do some specific custom searches. You can search by specific streets. You can search by zip codes. You can actually even search for entire states. And I find that very useful for people that that really don't know where they want to go. You know, they have a general idea. Hey, maybe I want to move to Colorado. But they don't know anything about Colorado. So you can go into Zillow, you can search on the entire state of Colorado, and then you can use Zillow to drill down and specifically filter out only the properties you want to look at based on how much you want to spend, what kind of acreage you want to buy, what kind of square foot in the home. You can plug in keywords like horse property or swimming pool, you know, whatever you're looking for. Another thing I really like about Zillow is that they have uh, pretty good estimates about what the value of the property should be. Now, remember, they're estimates, and they're not going to always be right. But of any of the uh, tools out there, websites I've looked at, I found Zillow to really be pretty much in touch with any type of real estate market where there are consistent homes being sold because they're accumulating all that data and they're able to to really drill down and come up with a good idea of what a particular price should be for the average home in that area. And speaking of average prices, this takes me to something else that I really like about Zillow. If you go to their website and you look up at the top data tab and then from there go into the market overview. And that'll allow you to drill down by specific state or uh, metropolitan real estate market and have an amazing amount of information at your fingertips. Things like average cost per square foot, what's the average days a, a property is on the market, how much inventory the market is, what that market is like, you know, whether it's a buyer's market or a seller's market. I mean, there's really just a wealth of information there, and you can be as as generic as the entire state, or like I said, you can even drill down into major metropolitan areas, and I think in some cases, even into fairly small cities and towns. So you really can't go wrong with Zillow, and then in particular, when you put that together with something like Google Earth, you can get a really good picture of not only what the real estate market's like, but what the terrain and the local area is going to look like, and I think that's really going to give you the best indication of a property or a neighborhood, other than actually, you know, visiting it and having boots on the ground. Now as far as taxes, this is a whole other can of worms, and taxes have an extreme variance not only from state to state or region to region in the U.S., but even within the particular state. And I think this is best illustrated by our listener's question because her and her husband are from Texas, and she's complaining about her tax burden. And many of you may be saying, well, hey, Texas doesn't have any income tax. Why would she be complaining about taxes? Well, it depends on where you live in Texas. But I've been hearing more and more people in Texas complaining about property taxes, and especially people that are living... Uh, in the Houston area. And that's the real conundrum you get into when you start looking at where you can live that's most tax efficient. Because although there are states that have no income tax, like Texas, like Florida, like New Hampshire, for the most part, those states, although they don't have income taxes, they levy really high taxes on property tax. Or in the case of a, a place like Florida, you're not only penalized with high property taxes, But since the state relies so much on tourism and it's so highly taxed on tourist activities, the local residents can really get nickel and dimed on things like sales tax and all the toll roads. And so what you're likely to find is that no income tax doesn't necessarily mean low tax burden. And that's really what you want to look for. You want to look for what your state and your local municipality's overall total tax burden is. For comparative purposes, I like to go to websites like smartassets.com, taxfoundation.org, or um, even places like wallethub.com. It's usually a good place to get a ranking of what the different states are like in terms of overall tax burden. But, you know, to some degree, you do have to take that information with a grain of salt because there are just so many taxes. It's so convoluted. You not only have state tax, you have local income tax, you have the property taxes. There are state sales taxes, which generally the local cities or municipalities add on to that. There are all types of different excise taxes, taxes on gasoline. Some states have an inheritance tax. Other states have estate taxes, some states tax Social Security income, others don't. It's a real hodgepodge. When you start digging into the data, you really find out how specific and convoluted it can get. So just speaking in general terms, and I'm going to use the list that's available over at smartassets.com. If you go to that website and you look specifically for their tax information, and then drill down to the tab on retirement tax calculator, that'll help you hone in on the states that not only don't tax income, but specifically don't tax things like social security or, or perhaps pension income. And the reason this is so important is if you look at a state like Tennessee, they don't have an income tax, but they do tax capital gains and dividend income. Well, for a person like me that doesn't have a corporate pension, I'm going to be deriving A great deal of my retirement income through my own investments. And since I would be taxed on my dividends and capital gains in Tennessee, that may not be a good state for me to retire in. On the other hand, if you were getting a great deal of your income from Social Security or some type of government or corporate pension, then you may have an overall lower tax burden in Tennessee than I would. So you can see how when you get into this rabbit hole, it can be really specific. But just to speak in generalities and to use the list over at smartassets.com, we'll give you a, a general broad view of what a particular state taxes in terms of income, whether they do or don't tax Social Security or other retirement income like withdrawals from your IRA. I think you can find that as a good resource. And there'll, there'll be some surprises there as well. For example, I'll tell you one state that you wouldn't necessarily think is a a pretty good place to retire, and that's mine and Jack's home state of Pennsylvania. Overall, their income tax rate is flat rate. I think it's just a little bit more than 3%. They don't tax Social Security income. They don't tax withdrawals from retirement accounts like IRAs, nor do they tax pension income. Not only is Pennsylvania very tax friendly, but depending upon what part of the state you live in, you're likely to find real estate costs below the national average. And in terms of overall quality and fertility of the soil, it's really hard to beat Pennsylvania farm property. Moving out to the West Coast, we think of that as a very highly taxed state. But really, Washington state is pretty favorable to retirees. There's no income tax. So, of course, that means no pension tax, no tax on Social Security. And if you live in the eastern part of the state over by, you know, Spokane or somewhere in that area, you'll find that property taxes, property prices are much lower than the western part of the state and definitely more uh, red state oriented than the more liberal left coast. And just to wrap it up, the other thing I would mention is that based on the ages you gave me, you and your husband are going to be retiring at an extremely young age with a really good cash flow. I would encourage you not to think about, you know, quote, retirement. But to think more about what you're going to do for this next phase of your life, you're going to have a good 25, maybe 30 years where you could be producing a secondary income. I would strongly encourage you, if you're not already thinking in that direction, to be thinking about what you guys can do from an entrepreneurial or from a lifestyle business. Since it's a lifestyle business, you'll have the benefit of not only earning an income like you would do with a normal employer, but being able to have the discretionary spending of the free cash flow that's generated from that business and what that can mean, those activities become legitimate business expenses. Well, I hope that gives you some ideas. Thanks for the question. Don't forget to check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the Expert Counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
1: So this actually dovetails nicely with uh, the segment that I did on Tuesday where I invoked Upgrade from uh, the movie Idiocracy. What He gonna get his money and that 's what I kind of uh, drilled down on, and I, I mentioned when John you know mentioned about Texas. It depends on Texas where because some parts of Texas now property taxes are absolutely ridiculous. And if you save a couple thousand dollars on income taxes in a state, but you give it back to the state in the form of property taxes, especially considering if you're in a, a very expensive property uh, and you no longer are itemizing for, for your income tax, so you no longer get a deduction for it uh, with doubling of the standard deduction, then, well, you know, it doesn't really work out any better than where you were before. And you might as well live where you want to live geographically at that point, and not make the decision on money alone. So the reality is, if we, if we make the state upgrade, and the state being a pimp is a pretty good analogy, uh, and he going to get his money, then what we have to determine is, for the individual pimp that we're talking about, whether it's the state of Texas or Florida, California, Washington, Pennsylvania, where and how do he get his money? And where and how does that interact with how we earn our money and then we find the place that works best for us based on the point in our life that we're in when you have the type of geographic freedom these folks have. Um, There are places I would love to live, but I don't know that I want to pay the price to live there. Um, I can tell you this, if it wasn't for family, it wouldn't be here. It just wouldn't be. There are places I could live where I could have a much... uh, a much more amicable relationship with the natural elements, for one thing, uh, and, a, a, and put a lot more money back in my pocket. But uh, we all make decisions in the end based on a totality of our lives, including the people that we love. So that always has to come into it as well. Next, I'm bookending today's show a little bit with Doc Bones. I still got one more from Nicole Sauce coming. But uh, I did put a call out to the expert panel. I am going to have a expert panel Q&A show for you guys next week. Uh, so it won't be uh, – so Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we're all going to be rewinds. Now one of those days will be an expert council show. So you only have two rewinds next week and then a week of rewinds after that. Sorry, guys. it's the best I can do. I, I need this vacation badly, guys. I'm telling you. Uh, I'm on the edge of a psychotic break. I really am dealing with some of the ass clowns out there that I deal with and just the stress in general. So you'll get rewinds on that. I did put a uh, – a poll on the Survival Podcast Facebook forum. I put picked uh, ten episodes for rewinds and let the ones that got voted on the most be the ones I'm going to do. So that might be an incentive for you to join the Facebook forum. It's not the Facebook page; it's a different thing altogether. The Facebook page I still post there because I have like a hundred thousand followers on it. But uh, you know, I'll post something on the Facebook page. And uh, a day later, it'll say like 1,300 people saw it. And if I will give, you know, Facebook 150 dollars, they'll let, you know, half of the people that already follow the page see it. And the the group, you know, is a much more responsive, much more interactive thing. And I do a lot of cool things with that. So. If you go to the the website and you kind of scroll down and look for the little vowel head, you know, the Survival Vowel Head, uh, our our logo, with the Facebook group and click that, or just go to Facebook and search for the Survival Podcast Facebook Forum and and join that forum. And you might have to wait for a mod to approve you. It is a closed group. Uh, Once you're in that group, you get access to things you wouldn't otherwise get access to. Uh, Anyway, with that, uh, let's uh, hear from Doc Bones on dealing with... uh, being on medications like Warfarin, which are blood thinners, and having to worry about bleeding that maybe not would not be a big deal for somebody else, but might be a really big deal for you or someone you love while you're on one of these blood thinning drugs for various reasons. With that, hey, Doc,
0: take it away. Hi, Joel Nemdi here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, and designer of medical kits for everything from family camping trips to medical missions overseas. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Aaron, who writes, What types of bandages and clotting agents do I need to have on hand for my wife who is on warfarin? Details. My wife is 2.5 weeks out of surgery after having an aortic mechanical heart valve put in. Okay, I hope everything's okay there, guys. She is on Coumadin for the rest of her life, and I am concerned about her getting a cut or other type of bleeding injury. What can I have on hand to help? Aaron, there are a number of popular blood clotting dressings on the market, but they don't all work the same way. The most popular is known as Quick Clot, and it's made from kaolin, a natural product found in clay. Despite its popularity, kaolin works by using the body's clotting factors to assist in stopping hemorrhage, and that's something that's problematic if you're on blood thinners like Coumadin or Warfarin. A better choice might be the other popular blood clotter, a product known as Celox. Celox is made of chitosan, a product that's obtained from the shells of crustaceans like shrimp. Chitosan doesn't use the blood's clotting factors to work its magic, but instead forms its own clot that resembles a gel. Celox has been proven to work even in the presence of warfarin or Coumadin, a welcome breakthrough for your wife and the 40 million Americans who are on blood thinners and who can suffer from severe bleeding issues. It comes in Z-fold bandages impregnated with the stuff, packets with the granules, and syringes for placement in small caliber but deeper wounds. Despite being made from seafood products, the company states that an allergy to seafood is not a contraindication to use of Cellox. Blood clotting dressings like Celox and Quick Clot aren't cheap, but they're effective. It's an investment you'll be glad you made if you face a major bleed. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our survival medicine handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits, individual items like Celox or Quick Clot, and other supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again.
1: Good stuff from Doc, and uh, now I've got kind of a two-four for you on uh, from Nicole Sauce on SEO plugins for WordPress and uh, a little segment at the end on uh, medicinal uses of coffee. And since that was really such a short answer, Nicole decided to, uh, to roll those two together. Uh, Nicole, take it away. And I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more on the website marketing, SEO-type stuff because, hell, that is the background that I come from. I guess I should say one of the many backgrounds that I come from.
5: Howdy, TSP. Nicole Soss here taking a question from Scott in Nebraska. Scott asks, what's the best free WordPress SEO plugin for someone just starting a personal blog? In the past, I've tried all-in-one SEO, and I've been trying Yoast lately, but was wondering if there was something better. I'm looking for something where I can test drive the free version and decide later about upgrading to a premium version. No solid business plan yet. Insert pregnant pause. Just writing about my various and sundry interests and experiences and seeing where it all goes. Scott in Nebraska. Well, Scott, first of all, I do owe you an apology. It's taken me quite a while to answer this question. I don't have a good excuse, so just sorry about that. In your shoes, I would worry a whole lot more about the no solid business plan yet part of your email and a little bit less about the SEO. Now, that doesn't mean zero SEO matters. It's just that if you're not focusing your marketing efforts on supporting a brand that you've thought about, and by extension, tailoring your SEO to that, I'm not sure how far SEO gets you beyond maybe ScottinNebraska.com comes up in the first few Google searches which is, you know, of limited value unless somebody's already heard of you. And yes, spending time developing your personal brand is not a bad idea. And that's what that is. And it's worth the effort. I just think that unless you know what you want to target with your website, it's really hard to, to do your SEO. And, and I'm not sure I'd put that much effort into that piece right now. Now, of course, people who know they want to target A term like, oh, I don't know, duck eggs in Fort Worth, Texas should spend some time tailing their SEO and and that does link to a solid goal. So just start thinking of it that way. And as as you're building out and writing your blog, if that's what that is, and have articles of different topics, do think about like, what is this article about? What keywords am I targeting with it? And set it up responsibly and get in that habit. And that said, here are some... Very general SEO best practices. I have forwarded a link to Jack to put in the show notes just that it's a pretty good, like you can just Google, uh, you know, SEO 101 or SEO basics and you'll come up with a number of decent articles. Uh, Wordstream.com puts out one that I thought was one of the better ones as far as just breaking it down in a simple way. So if you want to really read up on it, that's where I would go. And I have sent that link over to Jack. So SEO best practices. One, you want to ensure that your title tags, meta description, the URL, like the name of the page up in the web browser and your content all support the keywords you're targeting. So this is where Yoast or all in one SEO comes in. It helps you tailor these things. So an example might be that nine mile, a title, nine mile farm, best duck eggs in Fort Worth. If you're targeting duck eggs in Fort Worth and then a meta description, which this is what if you type in duck eggs and you're in Fort Worth, there'll be a website and then there'll be a little description of the page, um, something you might put there that would make somebody maybe want to go look at it, learn three reasons that Nine Mile Farm produces the best duck eggs available in the Fort Worth region and find out how to taste them and learn what you can do to spoil your ducks at home. It it can be, you know, you just want to support, again, the terms duck eggs in Fort Worth. In the meta description, you also want to give me a reason to click into your site. So that's the first thing. So you want to make sure those things are in order on any post you do. And that's where Yoast or All-in-One SEO come in. The second thing, ensure that your post or article is laid out in a way that makes the site visitor able to easily absorb the information uh, you can do this by using titles like H1, H2 tags, enough words on the page that it's seen as an informational resource, external links, but not too many if you're referring to other things, and using alt tags in the photos. The way I think about this is think about Jack, who has one functioning eye, and when you send him an email, you get to the point at the top, and you, you put space in there so he can absorb the information, right? Just pretend like everybody going to your sites that way because it's it's... People who see, A, people who see that are going to read your site longer than if they just have a big old brick of text. And B, the search engine spiders are going to like that. They're going to prioritize that. They like headings. They like having bullet points. They like seeing, uh, text that's laid out in a way that looks like it might be understandable. Okay. Three, ensure that your site is responsive. If you're building a new website, there is no reason not to start with it being mobile ready. And that is becoming increasingly a priority as well, as well as SSL. Make sure you have your security certificate on your site. It's free at most hosts. There's no reason not to do that. Be available as a guest blogger or to be interviewed by others. This is great. So When somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, can I interview you? Say yes. And then they will interview you and they will link back to your site. That helps your site gain visibility. Use social media and other well-regarded sites to promote your content. So right now, if you go and were to type in Living Free in Tennessee, you'll see a bunch of my stuff come up, right? Well, some of those things are like the Kickstarter campaign I did for the coffee or the Patreon page that we have set up. So we, we have a handful of things we know we can maintain. And some of them are sites that have a lot more uh, reputation than maybe mine does. And by, by that linking back to my site, that helps me a lot in the Google and it helps people find me because my goal, right, with any of this is that people can find me and then hopefully they'll decide to support whatever it is that I'm doing or you're doing. And then Finally, to your first question that you asked, which is the last thing I'm talking about, is what if you should use Yoast SEO or All-in-One SEO as the best plugin? Well, I prefer Yoast. I prefer Yoast because it's the one I use all the time. On the other hand, I also have multiple friends in the web development world who use All-in-One SEO and they love it. So I can't really recommend one over the other. If you were going into a super advanced SEO targeting thing, which I, again, I wouldn't recommend that at this time. I, I would tell you at that point, it's probably time to work with a professional. And I, I rarely see a case where somebody really needs to do that for the betterment of their business. So, you know, once you've been responsible with your SEO like the the question is how else are you getting people to your site how else are you selling things cuz you know SEO only gets you so far it gets you like 10% down the road you got the other 90% to do that so are you going to put your money into making 10% into 20% or are you going to put that same money into a different promotional arm that might get you you know 60% down the road so all i can say is use one of them and get to know how it works to optimize your content and keywords and meta descriptions. But Scott, also don't get wrapped around the axle on SEO right now because it's not the most important thing for you for your step towards success on this. Gone are the days when you could just, you know, set up a website and tailor everything in and be the number one reference out of the shoot in, you know, something like homesteading, for example. Um, unless you're in a really, really niche market, and search term area, you're not gonna you're not gonna get there. You know, search engines are built to link people with information they seek. They're not looking to like bamboozle people into going to one side or another. And you know, the guys running them are doing everything they can to try to you know honestly link people with what they're searching. So one other thing, Google's does like sites that increase in size over time. So a regular regularly scheduled post for example is a really important thing like updating your site regularly and adding to it helps even when you feel like you're just posting in the wind which is often how these like you start a blog and like it it seems like nobody's reading it and half the time nobody is except for your mom well that's okay like my first podcast I had 85 downloads in the first 24 hours I was stoked my second had 11 Eleven. But I kept my nose to the grindstone and now I get a thousand, right? I I you know, I come up in in the first page of search results when you type Freedom Homesteading and Podcasts. And I did that all without paying for ads. I just did it through discipline. And if you have that same discipline in what you're starting now, I think a couple of things will happen. As you're thinking about what you want to share with the world, you'll be able to hone down into those things that define your core brand. And your core goals, you'll, you'll be able to set up business goals if it's turning into a business. And then from there, you can go from doing responsible SEO to each post on something different to having uh, more regular themes that come up. And, and that helps you build over time. So thanks so much for your question. I have no idea. You have no idea how many people like ask me about SEO. And I just think that. Again, it's not the first place to put your focus. It's just a place where you have to do something. It's it's like sweeping your kitchen floor, right? You have to be responsible about it or it's going to get really messy. But at the same time, it's not something that you have to invest a lot of time in every, you know, out of the chute, so to speak. So with that, I do have a second question and it won't take me much time to answer it. This one's from Jason. Jason writes, I have heard that in order to get the most from medicinal properties of coffee, that it needs to be brewed within three minutes of being ground. Is there any validity to this claim? Jason in Oklahoma. Okay, Jason. I well, I had to reach out to Jason, by the way, to find out where he had heard this claim because I talked to a number of herbalists and they were like, what? So um, he said he was talking to somebody once. And what he was really meant to ask was what are the medicinal uses for coffee? So, um... First of all, while I love using plants for wellness and have spent spent lots of time learning about certain ones, I am not an herbalist, nor have I gone as far as Jack down that road, and I've never really thought much about the medicinal uses of coffee. So what I share with you today is after I reached out to a local herbalist in Tennessee who runs Fablehaven Pharmacy, and she also grows many of her herbs there, and I just said, you know, how do you use coffee with your clients? What about this three-minute thing? And she linked me to some resources. Again, I have sent some links to Jack if you're interested in medicinal uses of coffee. Uh, but I am not an herbalist. And, you know, don't take this as medical advice. I don't want to be sued. Right? Okay. So here are some uses. Like the first one she came up with, it works for about 33% of the population, about a third of the people. It has a laxative effect. Have you ever had a cup of coffee in the morning and you're like, it's time? That works for about a third of the people, and she does use that with some of her clients from time to time. Um Coffee, you're going to be shocked about this next one. It keeps you awake. Woo! Even decaf can keep you awake because some of the other, its um it can raise your blood pressure a little bit, and even without the caffeine, that might keep you more alert, more awake. People, of course, then try to use that to be more productive and focused, so that's another way people use coffee. It has been shown to block symptoms of multiple sclerosis, which is an interesting thing. I doubt that it would be blocking them forever, but I was reading about that thinking, hmm, that's interesting. It is also said to help reduce allergy symptoms and clear the sinuses. And In fact, I have used it when I have a bad cold to clear out my sinuses and it, it's not like if you pop a decongestant or something, which I basically don't use those things anymore. But it does help. So does whiskey. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of other uses I found in the links there. Um, in summary, it's a digestive stimulant. It is a central nervous system stimulant. It includes Increases inotropic actions. It's a diuretic. We do know about that. And it's an antioxidant. In fact, coffee, a coffee enema is used by some for its its, uh, antioxidant properties to help fight inflammation like immune system disorders and cancer. Um, and th- this is why I think it's integrated into the Gerson therapy, which combines that coffee enemas with a lo- like consuming a large amount of juiced vegetables. Again, this is informational. You can go check out any of those things in the links I've provided Jack, just sharing how it's used. It's really up to you to decide which of these benefits or methods work. And um, you heard it here first, I guess. As to your question about the three-minute rule, the volatile oils locked in coffee begin to break down after it's ground because I guess it's exposed to the air and they begin to break down. So the sooner you brew the coffee or use it however it's supposed to be used after you grind it, the better. And probably the person who gave you the three minute, like three minutes and one second isn't a big deal, but maybe they're thinking like three weeks later is because a lot of the oils have dissipated. So I would say that's probably a guideline of whoever you were talking to. Um, It would never really have occurred to me to ask a question like that because freshly ground coffee tastes so much better than stale old coffee so you know around here we tend to grind it and use it that's just the way it works unless you're in my airbnb in which case i give it to you ground anyway tsp that's it for today if you want to know more about me head on over to livingfreeintennessee.com if you need coffee to help keep things moving you can get it uh with an msb discount at HollerRoast.com. and jack Keep eating that bacon. It's leading to some fun discussions on your forum. Okay, everybody, make it a great week.
1: So I do have all of Nicole's links in the show notes. I, I'm going to take a little bit different of an approach when it comes to SEO for anybody that's beginning building a website and sees themselves uh, long-term in web marketing. So I, I look at – now there's, there's two types of SEO. And they are on-site and off-site is the easiest way to think of them. And on-site is all the things that you have direct control over. And and, and this has limited impact. And it, from the day search engines started doing this stuff, uh, the impact that what you did on your site had on their results continued to go down and continues to go down. And search engines are far more now about forms of artificial intelligence and links and to give you a little bit of my background if you're new to this show I go back in in the internet days to the very beginning when Yahoo was just a directory and Google didn't exist and we were uh, optimizing for websites like AltaVista, Lycos and Hotspot uh, to name a few and, and then Dogpile came around and amalgamated everything and nobody uses any of this shit anymore so it, it's, it's a while that I go back and there at, at the time, there were all kinds of really stupid little tricks you could do, like hidden text and stuff like that. And, and you pl- if you played around with that, you, you they, they caught on to that quick and kind of burned the websites that you were uh, using. But what people didn't understand about those of us that were in those early days of manipulation of, of the search engines is we never did that with sites that we actually had long-term aspirations for. We would buy domain names and build up little stupid sites and push the envelope into the world of Black Hat to see what worked, what didn't work, what got you banned, and then understand the algorithms and then understand how to cheat fairly so that we could manipulate things in our direction and not get our sites or our clients' sites banned. And so we got pretty sophisticated. And at times, and there probably still is, but at times I felt like there were holes in the search uh, engine algorithms you could drive like a fleet of trucks through. And, And we could just get search engines to do whatever we want. And at one time, on-site SEO with anything even remotely non-competitive, there was less than a couple thousand people even uh, optimized for it, with really spot-on on-site optimization, title and description and keyword density being the key things, with some H1, H2 tag things going on as well, maybe a little bit of bold text, and some links that were pointing to other relevant content that used the context you were looking for, you could take hundreds, if not thousands, of terms uh, to the point where we played around with things like ASP and PHP programming, creating sites that self-replicated pages with optimized rotating content. And I did things like, well, I used to sell local phone service. So I made a website with over 50,000 cities. And it had a page for every city in the country. And about 10,000 of them were like in the top three for, let's say, Jacksonville local phone service. And that was all driven by a database. And we took a whole bunch of articles and chopped them up in little pieces and put them in a database. And when it would load the page for Jacksonville, at the bottom it would randomly pull four articles that had something to do with phones, so that you know it wasn't uh, irrelevant content, and it also wasn't duplicate content. So when it when it loaded that page a second time, it would randomly pull from let's say a thousand articles and assemble four of them. So that all 50,000 of those pages looked like unique pages to the search engines. And we got away with stuff like that for a long time. Don't do any of this shit. doesn't work anymore. But boy, it made me a lot of money while it did. And, and I believe that people that did the types of things that I did are why search engines are as good as they are today. If we hadn't done those things, if we hadn't manipulated them, if we hadn't pushed them to the extreme, they wouldn't have fixed these glaring problems that they had And you'd still get shitty results from the search engines. And the one thing I would say about what we did in our black hat, as it was called, and still is, I guess, uh, SEO operations, is when you found our stuff, at least it was relevant. If If you found my thing and you were in Atlanta and you said Atlanta local phone service or Savannah local phone service or Sheboyganville local phone service and you found my page, well, you could find out about local phone service for your area, including we don't offer it, but here's who does. So it did work, and it was relevant. And and the only reason I tell you that is to kind of give you some context of where I'm coming from with the advice that I'm about to give you. While the on-site approach does not work as good as it did, it still works, and you have no idea what golden nugget you're going to find that's going to bring a couple hundred people a month to your website. And I'm going to tell you how to figure that out when it starts happening and how to capitalize it on just a second. The next thing is I see the most fundamental on-site SEO tactic, which is a good title and description that Nicole talked about. I'm going to tell you another way to think about it, maybe a little bit more accurately in just a second. But that title and description tag as... When it comes to, to, let's say if you wanted to be a paper delivery boy back in the day where you got on your bike and you drove around and threw papers at people's at at people's doors, um, first you learn to ride the bike. You learn to ride the bike, and then everything you do with the bike, you don't even think about being able to ride the bike anymore. You just do it. Title and description tags to me are learning to ride the bike. And do you want a good SEO plugin Yoast works all in one SEO works all of them work um, most of the add-on features, the premium features and all are bullshit. You want to optimize you know the front page of your site you want to optimize the individual pages of your site because you' usually have an about page and stuff like that, even if it's just a blog and then you want to optimize every single post the days of saying, well since I want." to rank a web page, let's go back to my little black hat experiment, for Jacksonville Local Phone Service, that I want Jacksonville Local Phone Service in there as an exact phrase match, 1.33% based on the total word count. And this is how scientific we got. We figured out, like, if we had these four random articles, if we trunctuated at this number of, of, of words, and we went with this number of usage of this repetitive content for each city, it would always be 1.33%. And that was like a magic sauce with Google back in the day, and I'm talking 15 years ago almost, 12 years ago I guess. And so that doesn't really work anymore, but that title and description do have a a tremendous effect on how that that, that page is displayed if it's found by the search engines and if it's listed. So you want to get really good at doing those quickly. And the reason you want to do that is I don't care about your solid business plan. I don't care what you're doing. If you're making content, you're doing something, and that's good. okay. And if you're making content, you're putting out content on a daily basis and even taking weekends off and stuff like that. If you're putting out five pieces of content a week, uh, taking two weeks completely off, 50 weeks, it's 250 pieces of content a year. And it will take you an extra two minutes, if that once you get good at it, to always put in a good title and description meta tag to every post and every page that you ever do. And if you don't do that for a year, then one day you're going to sit down and you have none of them done, and now you need to go back through 250 pieces of content individually tailor a a title and description tag to them. Well, would it be easier just to do that out of the gate? And the answer is, of course it would. So to do effective title and description tags... You can say, I'm going to make this page optimized for this term. And then, you, you know, to get that term, you use keyword research tools and you find out this low target term uh, that's a high value term, long tail, less competition. And you go after it guns blazing like I did with, you know, Fort Worth duck eggs and Dallas duck eggs. And I was able to take both of those terms, number one, in a couple weeks. And it's because they weren't that competitive and because I really know what I'm doing. And because I have enough other website properties that I can put up my own links and affect the off site factors, which is something many of you do not have the ability to do because you haven't been doing this a long time. So you don't I have sites you guys don't even you'll never know about. Because it's just not relevant or germane to you. But if it's at any way, in some way in the niche of something I'm doing, I'll turn up links on it. And 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 that helps the off site factors. But on these on-site factors, You need to think about it like classified advertising in newspapers back when people read newspapers. Remember when everybody read the newspaper, even like some high school students read newspapers back in the 80s. And if nothing else, people read newspapers on the weekends. It was what you did. And I know there's some older folks that still are into that, but in general, newspapers are a dying medium. But back in the 80s, the 70s, even the 90s, people read newspapers somewhat religiously. And out of that, you know, if there was a million people that received the Dallas Morning News, there would be a half a million that would at least peruse the classified ads. Out of that half a million, there was about a 100,000 that, you know, really looked at the classified ads. And then out of that 100,000, maybe if you were in one particular segment of the classified ads, there was maybe ten to 20,000 people that read that segment. So you didn't worry about whether somebody would see that ad when you bought it. You bought it because you knew they would see it. What you did is you got a certain word count that you were able to use. And when it comes to search engines, you have a title and a description. And in spite of SEO people changing their opinion on this, the, the main search engine is Google. And Google uses 160 characters in their description and 60 characters in their title. And if you don't make one, they'll ascertain one, they'll do their best guess at what your page should be titled, and they usually just take the first 160 characters of text off your page and make it a description. So if you get listed and you haven't set that up, and that's what Nicole was talking about, what people see is whatever Google thinks they should see. If you put in a title tag and a description tag within those character limits, 60 for the title, 160 for the description, then people will see exactly what you want them to see. So the way you think of these tags on your web pages is the title is the headline in your classified ad, and then the description is the call to action in your classified ad. So when you bought that ad back in 1985 because you were advertising you had a room to rent up in your attic, or you had a car for sale, or you were having a garage sale, you put all your effort into making the ad itself compelling, taking for granted that somebody would see it. Well, if you put out enough content, some of that content going to get picked up. Some people are going to see it, many thousands of people over time. And if we take that same approach, what we're trying to do now is get them to click on the link and come to our site. Okay? Because you can be the number two or number one website and get very few clicks if you're not compelling and the people around you are. You have two battles. One get found, two get acted on. So I think you should be doing this. Yoast, all-in-one, I don't care. I don't think it's really that relevant. But you should learn to craft your title and description like ad copy. And if you do that, you're going to get a lot better results. As far as a solid business model, I don't want somebody to sit around and not build content because they don't know what their business model, i.e. their revenue model, is. So get going. However... That doesn't mean that you do not have a business model in place immediately. And this is your business model in place immediately. You want people to get in touch with you with their information so you can get in touch with them again. That means that everything on your website needs to be built toward getting them to give you your email address. Even in this day of social media and Twitter and Facebook, I just talked about how on my Facebook page, I have 110,000 plus followers. I put up a, 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 a thing, and 1,300 people see it if I'm lucky. And then they want me to pay them to give my content to the people who have already said they want it on Facebook. I'm sorry. I'm not putting my I'm not priming the Facebook pump much anymore right I'll use the tools that are there I'll use the property that's there but I have always been about building the email list building the email list I will take an email list of 10,000 responsive people over a Facebook page with a million followers uh, I won't even like if you said I, I have these two things you can have and you can start marketing to you have a Facebook uh, page with a million subscribers. We have a responsive email list with 10,000 subscribers. Which one do you want email list? I have a direct relationship with those people. Nobody can change the rules. I can compel them uh, to do business with me. I can compel them to refer business to me. I can compel them to come back if they used to be customers. I can find out their opinions, and I know I can reach them. Now, it's up to me to get them to open the email list, or the email, right? So it's not a guarantee, but the guarantee that I can reach them is key. Assuming, and I said responsive email list, it's not a spam list, right? So what you want to do on any website is you want to compel people to subscribe. And and, and yes, the other ways too, Facebook, Twitter, any way that they can connect with you, but definitely email. And if that means writing up a report, you know, here are 10 ways to make sure you don't get screwed in this market that I'm in uh, based on my experience. Give me your email and you can have it. Uh, I do posts every day to make sure you get the new posts. Subscribe here. Uh, here. But also, you know, here's my YouTube channel. What I love about YouTube, despite all of the shit, is at least if you get a subscriber on YouTube who clicks the little bell that says, I want an email every time Jack puts up a, a video, then they get an email every time I put up a Now, they may change that someday, but at least they're doing it now. So any way you can get them to engage with you, that is your initial business model, is engagement, entanglement. You want that person sticky to you somehow. You want some you got some goo on you, they got some goo on them, and even when they separate, it's got that big long sticky line that leads back to you. I know it sounds gross, but that's what you're looking to do. You create that stickiness. So then then you can figure out what your business model is. And I am big on business models. I agree with Nicole. But I'll also say that for the first six months of this show, I did not have a revenue model. I had a business model, but not a revenue model. I did not have any paid sponsors. I did not have a membership. I wasn't sure how I was going to monetize this show. I just did it. But I had stickiness. I had a refer people contest. If you tell people about my show... You can win something. And so that I know who you are, if you're doing that, fill out this form. Now I can contact you. Fill out this other form, and I'll update you about new episodes. Hey, subscribe to my show on iTunes. If we get 1,000 subscribers, then I'll give this thing away. Right? So that created a buzz. That created an excitement. It created, hey, if we want this guy to be successful so he keeps doing this shit, we need to be involved and we need to help and it wasn't really manipulative it was honest and that's the most important thing with all of this people always say to me when i get on like interviews or what have you or do presentations on the marketing and the business stuff what are the tips and the tricks you know what are the tricks these aren't tricks these are fundamental laws of business and they're fundamental laws of, of, of universal energy. If you do good shit to people, good shit comes back to you. If you do bad shit to people, bad shit comes back to you. So even though I was setting this up and stacking this as a model, knowing that when I said, if you tell people about my show, the majority of people would not go knock on their neighbor's door and say, hey, Tom, I want you to listen to this guy, Jack. They would put it on their blog, they would go to a forum, they would put it on Facebook. That was great. It got me links from all different websites, and it got me disgust, and it got some people to say, he's a jerk. I don't like him. He's an egotistical asshole who rants and raves in his car on the way to work. And some other people said, well, if he's that bad, I want to see how bad he is. So they tuned in and they said, this guy is a jackass. And they came back and said, he's a jackass. I agree with you. And then other people said, well, if he's a jackass, I want to hear him be a jackass. So they went and listened and went, wait a minute. I like this guy. He sounds pretty cool. And then they came back to a forum or whatever and said, they, I like this guy. They, well, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. And then people started arguing about me. And then other people came to check things out. So the business model was being engaging and being sticky and creating an environment where feedback was encouraged and entanglement was encouraged. And then we can back a revenue model into it once we've built something. So it really depends on you because you're going to find a lot of times I had websites that had certain revenue models That didn't survive contact with the enemy, so to say. So I would get to a point where I'd be like, okay, my my plan for this site is not working, but I have traffic to it. How can I monetize it now? I at one time had a whole series of websites. The only thing that was on them was a bunch of Google AdWords. Uh, My best month ever, I made $18,000 in a single month running websites with ads on them. And then Google changed the rules and changed the rules and changed the rules, and now I make a couple hundred dollars a month off those websites that are still out there that don't cost me that much to to, to run, honestly. But some of them are so useless that it's not even worth renewing the domain name on them anymore. But you see, they change the rules. So your business model always has to be adaptable. I do very well with Amazon affiliates right now. But if Amazon changes the rules, I'll lose that revenue. So I have to have other ways... Of, of doing business with people. So entanglement is always the actual business model. When you see company A buys company B, what company A really bought is either some sort of technology that they cannot develop on their own, and this is the exception. The rule is they bought a customer base. They bought the base of customers from the other company, and now they can continue to sell whatever company B was selling them, but they can sell them all the shit company A has. The value, the asset within a company, other than things like real property and hard assets, the, the real value, people say, is the goodwill. But the goodwill is only as valuable as the customer base says. The value of the asset is the customer. So your business model, no matter what you're doing, is build a customer base. Even if you don't have a product for them yet, build a database of customers you can market to in the future. Those are my thoughts on that. Hope that helps you, all of you that want to build. And I don't care if you, all you're doing is I'm doing YouTube videos and I want to build a YouTube channel. I think you're digital sharecropping. I think that can be a huge mistake. I think YouTube can can screw you in the butt, and they've done it to a lot of people, but even if that's what you're doing, you want that sticky entanglement, and you want at least some method of getting those people to tell you who they are beyond the YouTube subscription so that you can have direct communications with them if YouTube sets off a nuclear weapon on whatever you're doing because they've done it to some people. All right, with that, We come to the end of another show. If you like this show and the work that we do here, remember you can support us by joining the Members Support Brigade. If you join the Members Support Brigade, you can support the Survival Podcast at 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, when you do that, you get your money back. How do you get your money back? Well, we give you discounts on about 70 different companies. Discounts that you really can't get anywhere else. And once you have those discounts, you you just take a look at them. And every year you use you know, a lot of them or even a handful of them, and you'll probably get your money back. And once you get your money back, well, then you got to support us. you got to give us the ability to continue to do what we do for you. And it, in the end, it doesn't really cost you anything. In fact, I hear from people all the time, and what they tell me is by using the discounts in the MSB, they don't get their money back. They make a profit. You know, they, they pay us 50 bucks a year, or they got in on one of the sales and they're paying 35 or 25 or something like that, and, and they're getting a couple hundred dollars in discounts a year. And, and then the response to, to anybody that says, Well, why do you keep this membership? is Well, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? Even if I think Jack's a jerk, I mean, I make I put money in my pocket with this. So do consider joining. Uh, all you got to do to join is go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. The other way, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're going to buy some online. Go to tspaz.com. Go from there. That's all you got to do. You can see all the items that I've reviewed on, um, on Amazon there, categorized, broken down. If you see them there, remember, I own it, I use it, I buy it. It's in my home, or I wouldn't recommend that you do. Uh, today is a product I, I brought around for you guys last summer. I'm bringing it around again. It's a time of year where your, uh, your pups may really need it. It is a uh, topical uh, spray for your doggies and it's got a a hydrocortisone at 1% in it, and it's got some other stuff in it, specifically some enzymes. There's three specific enzymes that come from milk proteins uh, that I will not uh, demean myself by trying to say. Uh, But what they do is they destroy bacterial, viral, and fungal microorganisms. And I discovered this. My, My dog, Charlie, last year, we think what initially started it is he got in some fire ants, and they, they bit his back paws. And this created two hot spots. And he had these two spots he was chewing, like, on the top of his feet, on the, on the back of his paws. They were uh, marks about the size of a quarter, no hair, bloody red. And he was chewing at them. And so I used comfrey ointment and uh, bitter apple spray. And I really recommend you have bitter apple spray for your animals as well. Uh, because it tastes terrible and it keeps them from licking and chewing at wounds so that they can actually heal. And uh, it worked on one, and the other one, I guess it was bothering him so much, even through the bitter apple, he kept licking the wound, and it wasn't healing. So I went out and I did some research, and I found this stuff. And it had like 400 reviews last year when I found it, four and a half stars, good good marks on fake spot, not phony reviews. Put it on his paw within a couple days, and it must taste really bad. I haven't tasted it to find out, but it must taste really bad because it stopped him from licking it. Uh, on top of working really well. And within a couple days, the wound was completely healed. It was just a bare spot. And within a couple of weeks, the hair had grown back. You could barely tell it was even there. And he also gets kind of red on his belly and kind of his groin area. He's a pit bull. He's got short hair. Doesn't deal with the heat as well. The other dogs get hot spots here and there. This stuff always works. Now, what I'm about to say is not medical advice, and I'm not suggesting you do it. I'm just telling you that when I saw how well this worked on a dog, I realized, like, it it doesn't say, like, if you get it on your skin, go to the emergency room. It probably won't hurt a human, and maybe it will help you. That fall, I got bit by a spider. I did not know that's what it was at first. Uh, I I was doing some work around hardware cloth, you know, like quarter-inch hardware cloth. It's wires, sharp, whatever. So I was building the aviary originally. And I looked out at my hand, and I've got these two little bloody dots on my hand it looked like a tiny snake bite like way too small for any pit viper but two little fang marks is what it looked like and i was like oh i i must have bumped the wire it's funny that it looks like a bite no it was it, i'm absolutely certain at this point it was a spider bite of some sort not a recluse or a widow or something like that i didn't get real sick but this bite got progressively worse it didn't heal Confrey didn't help it none of the other things i put on it helped it and it started to get a little bit necrotic. It started to spread and get like a red ring around it. And it started to have some dying flesh in it. Like basically a light version of a, a recluse bite. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm going to try this shit. So I sprayed it on there and it made almost an immediate difference that first day. And it stopped the advancement of that necrosis. Stopped that reddening. And within a couple of days it was completely gone. And it had shown no signs of slowing down and only getting worse. If it had gotten any worse, I would have went to the doctor, like, what can I put on this? Uh, So that worked for me. I've also at times been hit, you know, you pick up a piece of wood or something, you're moving it around. Next thing you know, there's 4 million fire ants on you. You get stung a bunch. I've used comfrey for that. I've also tried this, though. As soon as you get bit, before the bites really break out, hit it with this, and they went away. I'm not suggesting you do it. I'm just saying that I did it, and I use it on myself. I'm just saying that's my opinion. I actually asked Dr. Bones if he'd take a look at this and comment on it. So we'll see if he will. I also told him if he doesn't feel comfortable medically commenting on the use of this, then I understand. So we'll see if he comments on that or not. And with that, we come to our song of the day. Song of the day today as we continue through Pink Floyd week, which will be Pink Floyd week plus a Monday due to my absence on last Monday, uh, is Dogs of War. This is definitely a song I've played for you guys before. This is also one of the songs I've always really loved by Pink Floyd. Um, I mentioned yesterday when I played on The Turning Away that, you know, back when I was a kid running around in my uh, jacked-up, shackled-up Grand Prix with my 455 in it – and my art, you know, my uh, Radio Shack uh, uh, amped up stereo with uh, my 6 by 9s and blasting music. Uh, on the Turning Away, I loved it. And I, I got it, but I didn't get it at the deeper level back then, but I got it. I'll tell you that I loved this song back then, um, and I didn't get it at all. I didn't get it at all. I mean, this song is about the seedy underbelly that is the merchants of war. Now, consider that at this time I had, I'd enlisted in the Army. I'd signed up to go to airborne school. Um, things were starting to ramp up over in the Middle East, a little bit here and there. We weren't really sure exactly what was going on yet, you know. Um, wasn't much longer after that. Uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait. Uh, and, and I was hard-charging into the military. And, like... To me, this song was like a battle cry song. And I thought it was badass. And I remember being in that car pushing its limits. Because, you know, you're not exactly talking about a sports car. You're talking about a car that will go fast with a big engine, but it's not exactly one that handles turns well. And and, and just pushing it on on mountain roads in Pennsylvania to the point where it's a good thing I didn't end up in a ditch or dead. Uh, And this was one of those songs that was like a driving song like that. And uh, it was after I got out of the military and uh after i took my walk on the appalachian trail and got down here to texas and everybody from the 80s had that big suitcase looking thing full of cassette tapes some you bought some you dubbed that you know i'd sit around in the evenings i had this roommate who worked night shifts, so during the week and i didn't have a lot of money i didn't go out much during the week so during the week i'd sit sit around and and, and write letters to people there was no internet yet so we still did that and I thought about my life and throw a log on the fire in the fireplace and listen to music and listen to this song and realize, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. This song is about the absolute atrocities that men do to other men in time of war and those that profit from it. And I think it's really easy to be the first Jack Spirico when that war never touches you. And I think one of the reasons that our nation has such an appetite for war is how long has it been since planes dropped bombs on the United States directly? And I guess you can go to Pearl Harbor Day, you know, in 1941 in Hawaii. But for everybody here in America, that still was very far away now, wasn't it? The answer is it's never happened. We've never had our cities turn to rubble except, well, Revolutionary War, War of 1812 to a degree. No living person has ever seen that. And the war between the states, which is us doing it to each other. This nation has been so insulated from war for so long due to mostly two giant oceans that war is somewhere else. And a little bit of war somewhere is good for the economy. A president said that one time. I won't say who. You can uh, find out for yourself. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it ain't far off. Guns and butter type of thing. That might refine down who it was. But something that's good for our economy, at the cost of blood and lives of others, isn't really good for the world. That's what this song's about. Something to think about over the weekend. I'll be back with you Monday and Tuesday next week. You'll have an uh, expert council show. I'm not sure if I'm going to air that Wednesday or Friday next week. I might air a Wednesday for you, and then we'll just roll rewinds from there on out. Or I might set it to go out on Friday. I'd be interested to hear from you in the subject uh, or the comments today or what have you by email. Uh, how would you like it done that way? Do you want your uh, expert council show next week on Friday, or do you want it Wednesday and then just roll rewinds from there? It's up to you. Uh, I am looking forward to my vacation and uh, I am also looking forward, once it's over, to getting back here and uh, rolling out even more new cool stuff as we begin our our eleventh year together at the Survival Podcast. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they
0: don't. I don't And fire. They're carefully measuring our courage, our capacity to fight, our capacity for sacrifice. The flower of an entire generation was lost. With its stimulus of new blood, new determination, new ideals. Yet we know that Russia today is regarded as a grave threat to our nation, to our
4: freedom.